Welcome to Echo Church. My name is J.D. Partain. I'm the pastor here at Echo Church, um, at least for a couple more Sundays. Um, today, I, I wanted to talk about a particular subject. I wanted to talk about Missoula, but I felt like it was the cart before the horse. And so today, I actually want to talk about gospel. Um, it's one of those funny words, gospel. You know, what are we talking about? It's definitely a churchy word. You know, when you're talking about gospel, what is it that you're referring to? Um, the reason I want to talk about gospel is because as, um, <laughs> as I come to a, a close, I guess, in terms of uh, my ministry here, um, you know, you reflect on a, on a number of things. And really, the bottom line is this. I'm tasked, right, by God to bring gospel. And the idea of bringing gospel, it can be a little bit daunting, but many times people don't even know what we're talking about, okay? Sometimes even Christians are not aware of what we're talking about. This is Echo Church, and as I say every week, we are called Echo Church because we resonate God's glory. Uh, we resonate the love that he has given us, and he has shown us this love specifically through Jesus Christ. And so at the core of our name is actually this idea of gospel, because gospel has at the center of it, Jesus Christ, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But those of you who are visiting, we're glad you're here. And uh, I hope that you <clears throat> get a lot out of this particular lesson. The Greek word for gospel, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is euangelon, euangelon. I practice too, euangelon, euangelon. All right, so it's a Greek word, and it's long, and it sounds like that. But uh, basically, it means this. The, the word means the good news, right? Or perhaps the good message. Um, there are a number of times that this word shows up in the New Testament. It's at least 133 times. Um, but sometimes it appears in different manners. And so sometimes it's just referred to as specifically the gospel, so I have listed about 46 times of it just being the gospel, uh, gospel of Christ. It's also called the gospel of God or the gospel of the kingdom. And so there's this word that's being used, this idea of the message, this idea that there's this, this something that's being delivered, that's being spoken throughout the, throughout, <laughs> throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, right? And it's this idea of news. So what news are we talking about? I recently met with a pastor named Aaron Kepke. He's spoken here a, a couple of times from New Hope Church. He told me there are four essential questions that we have to, that we have to answer. Um, number one is this, who is God? Number two, who are we in relation to God? And even though we've been talking about women in ministry the past few weeks, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've really touched on that particular subject. Who are we in terms of the image of God? But then what is the problem that exists between us and God? And then the fourth question is, how is this problem addressed? Gospel is actually wrapped up in that fourth question. Now, it finds its way through all of the four questions, right? But really in that fourth question is where we, we see gospel begin to land. The core of the gospel is the, uh, essentially the explanation for uh, question number four. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 5 through 7, I love what Eugene Peterson does with his, uh, his masterpiece. It's called The Message. It's not really a Bible translation, but uh, 
he writes it in a very conversational way, and he says this, um, translating Colossians 1, starting in verse 5, the message is as true among you today as when you first heard it. It doesn't diminish or weaken over time. It's the same all over the world. The message bears fruit and gets larger and stronger, just as it has in you. From the first, very first day you heard and recognized the truth of what God is doing, you have been hungry for more. It's as vigorous in you now as when you first learned it. I love the way he, he uh, writes Paul's words as Paul's writing to the citizens of, of uh, or the Christians really of, of Colossae, you know. And I love the fact that he points out, you know, you're hungry for it. It's like it stirs up an appetite inside of you. I recently was talking with another pastor, and he was lamenting the fact that biblical literacy is at an all-time low, right? So what do we do about that? And there's all this conversation among pastors. How do we get the Bible in people's hands? Well, we should have this Bible study and this Bible study and this Bible study. And as those of you know, when we've been at Echo here, we've struggled to have Bible studies that have been on the ground, right? And why? And what is that? And what is it that, that prohibits people today from understanding the message in such a way that you would see this type of hunger? That's the kind of question that stirs inside of me. What's going on in our culture that we need to adjust to? That we as this church need to bring good news to the people of Missoula in a way that when they begin to hear about it, they actually want to hear more. Like, how do we arrive at that point? It's a critical question. If we're talking about the work that you have as Christians, if we're talking about the fact that you've been commissioned by Jesus Christ to do great things, to go into all the world and preach all the gospel, then what do you do when the receptivity is at an all-time low? What do you do when people have no disregard have no regard or no sense of value for the message that you have such strong value for. Is this starting to do this again? All right. I'll say this. The good news, when we talk about the gospel, the good news is not just good advice, right? Uh, D.A. Carson, he says these words, because the gospel is news, good news, it is to be announced. That That is what one does with good news. The essential heraldic element in preaching is bound up with the fact that the core message is not a code of ethics to be debated and still less a list of maxims to be admired and pondered and certainly not a, uh, a, syst a, system, a systematic <laughs> theology to be outlined and, and, schemata and schematized. Wow, I cannot talk today. And schematized. Though it properly grounds ethics, maxims, and systematics, it is none of these. It is news. It is good news, and therefore it must be publicly announced. I love that because sometimes I think the idea is that, well, the Bible's great. It has a lot of good things to say. We have all sorts of different refrigerator magnets that have Bible verses on them, and we stick them you know, on the refrigerator or wherever, and we look at them now and then. And that becomes the extent of our usage of, of what we do with the Bible and what we do with the gospel. So what are we talking about? Well, let's talk about the gospel itself. It begins with, obviously, a problem. Question three of what Aaron Kepke gave me was, what's the problem? What's the problem between God and ourselves? David Foster Wallace, he spoke these words to the graduating class of 2005 Keaton College. He says, everybody worships. 
The only choice we get is what? To worship. The insidious thing about worshiping money, things, beauty, power, or intellect is they're unconscious. These are our default settings. What does he mean? He means that we were wired as human beings to worship. And I think he's right. I think when God made us in his image, we were wired to worship, but we were wired to worship what? Who? God. Our free will, though, allows us to choose, right? Who, who we're going to worship or what we will worship. Wallace describes the inherent struggle of humanity with sin and its ultimate consequence of spiritual bondage. We try to maintain control of life by focusing and worshiping on anything other than God. Money, career, family, fame, romance, sex, power, comfort, social and political causes, pleasure. I always, I always told my kids, you know what's most important to you, to you boys? And then, you know, I'm calling out my two boys. Things that are fun and things that are funny. Those are the two. That's like the top two right there that they would prefer to worship. And that was when they were much, much younger, of course. And as a parent, I'm trying to help them understand there are other things that are worth dwelling on. Um, and of course, what happens with all of that? We find ourselves in bondage to those particular things. Many times people don't realize it. But what happens if you have that thirst for money? If you have that worship of the dollar, will it ever be satisfied? I, I haven't seen it. Right? What about when you're worshiping these other things, such as beauty or fame? Will it be satisfied or does it lead to catastrophic results, insecurities? Yep. Sin results in condemnation. In other words, we are guilty because of our sin. Therefore, as a just God, we suffer the ultimate punishment and the consequences. Romans 6, verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so because of this sin that we have, we are now guilty. So not only do we suffer the bondage of what sin causes us to have, right? the bondage of the things that we're worshiping, but we're also guilty. In other words, we're a big mess in, in, in the world. Not only that, but we are separated from God. And we see the symptoms of separation. That's the whole background of Genesis chapter 3. Throughout the women in ministry study, we kept going back to Genesis chapter 3. It's the fall of man. It's where man decided he would no longer worship God, that he would worship what he wants. And so he eats this fruit, and suddenly there is this chasm that develops between man and God caused by sin. So there's this separation. So due to the sin, the sin of mankind... We are broken and we are experiencing the effects of that curse. We are broken psychologically. So now we experience shame and fear. We're broken socially. So now we suffer an alienation from God and an alienation from each other. We are broken physically. So we experience um, pain and toil, physical defect, physical deterioration, and ultimately what? Death. And our world in general is broken. It's filled with suffering and disease, poverty, racism, natural disasters, war, aging, and again, death. Tim Keller writes these words. He says, the world is out of joint and we need to be rescued. But the root of our problem is not these horizontal relationships, though they are often 
the most obvious, it is our vertical relationship with God. All human problems are ultimately symptoms, and our separation from God is the cause. I'll say that again. All human problems are ultimately symptoms. It's our separation from God that is the cause. But there's good news. That's why we call it good news. So we started with the bad stuff. You know, we're in the, in the problem. But the crux of the good news is essentially Jesus Christ. And the world knows Jesus Christ in the sense of his name. I love his name. I think his name kind of highlights uh, this unique fact of, of who he is. Jesus is an earthly name. I mean, it's, it's a name that other people would have had. It's very closely akin to Joshua. Joshua being deliverer. You know, and you could say that deliverer is something that would lead maybe to Christ himself. But Joshua was a deliverer. If you, if you think back in, in, those, in those times. Um, but then he's also called Christ, which comes from Christos, which means essentially the anointed or the anointed one. Jesus has essentially three spiritual strategies, or maybe I should say God has essentially three spiritual strategies. The first one is this, that he would be here, that he would be here. That alone sets him apart. He would be the incarnate. He would be Jesus on the earth. He would experience life just like you. He would have bad breath. He would have uh, all sorts of, you know, different turmoils that you and I have, you know. Uh, growing up, his, his voice probably squeaked when he went through puberty. You know, all this different stuff that we probably don't think about when we talk about Jesus Christ. He would experience that then he would also experience the brokenness that you felt. And even though he wouldn't find himself in a position where he was sinful, he would witness it. Think about it. When Jesus is making his way back down to Jerusalem for his, um, well, eventually his demise, as he's, as he's coming down, he receives news that Lazarus, his good friend Lazarus, is going to die. He receives this news two days in advance. He can easily make the trip over and decides not to. By the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead. Jesus already knows what's going to happen because he told his disciples that they would see something glorious. But he weeps. Why? I mean, there's all sorts of theories. I personally believe he weeps because he sees and experiences a front row seat to the brokenness that we are in. I think he sees the distraught people, the ones that he loves all around, completely heartbroken. He knows he's going to overcome death. They have no clue, but he can see the effects of what death brings. I think he's so close to humanity and he's so in love with who we are that to see us in that particular state and and to see the effects of what the fall looks like with humanity. I think he's overcome with grief. And I think that's why he weeps. And that's what it means to be this incarnate, that he gets to be here with us. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if there is a God, we certainly don't relate to him as people on the first floor of a building relate to the people on the second floor. No, we relate to him the way Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. We, the characters, might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put information about himself in the play. 
So God places himself into the script of this particular meta-narrative, and he became relatable, he became empathetic, he became a literal part of our story. Philippians 2 says that we should have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. It literally means he laid aside his privileges, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He had it good, right? He sacrificed that. He humbled himself and he came down and he walked here with you and myself. Strategy number two, Jesus became the substitution. So Hebrews chapter four says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, just as we just described, yet what? Without sin, spotless, completely clean. I mean, why? So that he could be holy, so that we could look at Jesus and, you know, have this idea that, you know, uh, Jesus was, was, was perfect in every way. What was the point? Well, as the guilty party, there is an injustice that has to be satisfied. The cost of our sin does not merely evaporate. I mean, in a, in a very uh, simple way, I know people could say, well, then why doesn't God just forgive the debt? Imagine for a moment that your house is broken into at night by a thief. The thief comes in, looks at your great big, big screen TV that you spent way too much money on, and he takes it. He takes it to a pawn shop, exchanges it for some drug money, right? Then he gets caught. He gets caught. The authorities bring him to the house. They want you to identify this particular person, or maybe you had to go to the police station to do it, but you do, and you identify them, and then they ask this question, would you like to press charges? Now you're suddenly up against a dilemma. You see, he owes you for the price of that TV, plus the window he probably broke trying to get in, whatever. There's a cost that's involved. And you can do one of two things. You can say, you know what? He owes me, and I, I want that money. He has to pay it. Or you can forgive it. So let's pretend for a second that you forgive it. You're a Christian. You're wearing the name of Christ. That's a good thing to do. You forgive the debt. Has the cost disappeared? No. No. When you forgave the debt, what did you do? You absorbed the cost. You took on the cost. And I can prove it because two days later, you can't live without Downton Abbey or whatever it is. And so you, you went to the store and you got a TV and you paid your own money for that TV. The cost still exists. The forgiveness doesn't just suddenly make it evaporate. And in the same way, there is a cost for the injustice of what it meant for me to turn my back on God, for me to sin against him. And because there is that debt that does exist, somebody has to pay it. It has to get absorbed somewhere. And that's what Jesus does. He's clean because he carries the cost. He carries the sin, my sin, the consequences of that sin, the death that should occur because of that sin, ultimately the separation from God that results as a result of that sin, that's now placed on him. It's actually quite beautiful. You can 
find the parallel of it in, in Leviticus, um, right in the middle of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapters uh, 16 and 17, because guess what? This is what they did in the old law. In the former covenant, the priest would put sin on an unblemished lamb, and it would be sacrificed. And in the same way, Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. That's why he's clean. That's why he's completely spotless. He's, and he has no sin. He has now become the substitution for our debt. And he absorbs all of it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. In other words, the death that I should have incurred, Jesus did. He became the substitute. And strategy number three is this. Jesus brings restoration. The next time Jesus comes, he will judge the world, but he will also put a final end to all evil, to all suffering, to all decay, to all death. Romans 8 says these words in verse 19, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This is an important point. Gospel isn't just about you. There's redemption that's happening. There's restoration. And I personally believe that God's people, God's people, the ones who are Christians, right, have that responsibility to bring that restoration to some degree. It's never going to be absolutely heaven on earth. We just said, when Jesus comes, that's when there's an end to all of it. But he also asks us to pray for it on earth as it is in heaven, whatever his will might be, right? But a part of the gospel is this, that we recognize, listen, that we recognize the curse. You have to recognize the curse. You have to recognize what has happened to all of humanity. And then you have to remember, you know what? We're against that. We're against the curse. And all that's happening in terms of restoration that Jesus is ultimately going to bring to this, that should be a part of your DNA. So how do we respond? Romans 8 verse 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So naturally the question is, that sounds great. So what must I do to be saved? It's the classic question, the classic Christian question. The answer is simple, eloquent. It is an invitation into God's grace, and it is simply this, faith. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I know some of you are thinking, what about baptism, right? Let me, let me put this to you uh, in a, as clear a way as I can. Your baptism itself does not save you. It doesn't. 
Your faith saves you. But when we talk about faith, we aren't talking just merely about belief. James makes a point of this. He says several times, like at least four different times in chapter two, he says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What's he talking about? Faith without works? I think he's describing the very essence of what faith is. Faith and belief are not synonyms. They're used as synonyms all the time. But let me put it to you this way. And he says this in James. He says that even the demons believe and shudder. What if we were to swap that word out for faith? Even the demons have faith. Is it the same? It doesn't even, doesn't it even kind of sound differently in, in terms of how you're processing that? So isn't it obvious that there's something that's different between these two things? And my point is this, your belief in Jesus Christ, your belief in who he is, is essential. But it comes with something else. Quite honestly, I believe it's belief with action. I say action because I think you can have faith in a bridge. You know what I'm talking about. You come up or you're on a, you're on a hike with, with John Lewin and you've gone way too far because he's ambitious that way and you're like, stop, but he doesn't. So you get to this bridge. Oh, hey. Uh, <laughs> you get to a bridge and it's a rickety old bridge and you're not sure it's going to support you. And John's like, no, you got to have faith in that, right? And you can say, I got faith in that bridge. But is it faith until you step on it? You can believe that the bridge is going to hold you. It's not faith. So you're actually stepping out onto that bridge. You see the difference? I think that's exactly what James is trying to describe. So in that line of thinking, if faith is what saves you, then I would say this. It's going to require two things, and that is a belief that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, coupled with the obedience. And the two can't be separated. They coexist together. It's like they're locked in place. It would would be silly if you took all of the the obedience or all of the act out of what faith is. Then it would just have belief standing there. So then call it belief. You understand what I'm saying? So then we come to this idea of baptism. Baptism is linked to salvation over and over and over and over throughout Scripture. Jesus. He says it in the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16. The resurrected Lord is saying, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now there's this big heated debate, right? Well, which is it? Which is it? I recently sat down to breakfast with another pastor, and he said this question. I love it. He said, so... Does baptism have anything to do with salvation? And uh, (laughs) I said, well, that is a leading question and not a fair one. (laughs) Because, of course, it has something to do with salvation. I know what he's trying to ask. What he's trying to ask is, do you believe that this one act is the very thing that saves you? And if he were to ask me that in that particular frame, I would say it does not. If it becomes a work, something for you to check off your box, if it becomes something that you're trying to do to work your way into heaven, which oftentimes 
Baptism can become that. Then now, that's not going to work. But if baptism is the result of your faith in Jesus Christ, that because he died and was buried and then was resurrected, and you in the same way are going to immerse yourself into that same type of resurrection, then yeah, it has a lot to do with salvation. And it's written about all over the place. In Acts, chapter, in Acts 2, verse 38, Peter's preaching his great big introductory sermon. He's not a coward anymore. He's very powerful. The people are pierced to the heart. They're like, what are we supposed to do? Peter says, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I stood there. One of the highlights of my life. In Jerusalem, I stood right there. It's called the Hold the Gates. And I looked at all the different mikvah which are these ceremonial washing pools that are still there. I mean, there's like 50 of them. They're all over the place. And pictured in my mind, people being <laughs> baptized because 2,000 people were added to the church, actually began the church that day. First Peter chapter 3, verse 28, baptism saves you. It's not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? I think it's connected. I do. So if people want to put on Christ, my next question is, hey, awesome. Let's go get you baptized. Right? I don't want to get into any more theological debates about it. To me, it's pretty simple. If you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord, have faith in who he is and obey what he has told you to do. Of course, there is other obedience and other aspects of faith in Jesus Christ as well in terms of how we're going to live out our lives as Christians since God chose you to be the holy people that he loves in Colossians chapter 2. Clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. What if this particular pastor asked me, do you think patience has anything to do with salvation? Like, it kind of does. <laughs> you know, It's like, hey, if you're going to be the people of God and you're not going to be patient, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but... It seems all tied together to me. So there are several Bible verses that sum up the gospel in a number of different ways. Um, Titus 3, 1 Peter 1, uh, Romans 1, uh, and then even Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Um, and, well, I'm going to read one because I love these. All right, so Titus 3 says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life by his grace. You're saved because of his grace. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And for some reason, he loves me anyway. And he loves all of you. And we have to deliver this message to people. You know, this gospel message is good news. And really, the good news 
kind of begins and ends with the same message. You know what it is? Man, he loves you. He crafted you. He, he made you. He had plans for you long before you were even conceived. And even though you live your life and throw away opportunity after opportunity and treat your body like crap and treat other people disrespectfully and just throw away so much potential, he loves you. He loves you regardless. And even when you hate him, his response is to love you. Man, that is an exciting message. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Well, I want to close by reading Acts chapter 19. Acts, Acts chapter 19 is a fun chapter for me personally because Paul goes to Ephesus, and Ephesus is a mess. And you get to witness not only what Paul does, but then you also get to witness the effect of this gospel. So what happens? Acts chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. I love the way that's put, the way, because the church is actually called the way. In fact, I know of a church that's called the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and this went on for the next two years so that the people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. But then in verse 11, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs and, or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases. Evil spirits were expelled. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, well, I know Jesus, and I know of Paul, but who are you? And then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them. He overpowered them. He attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus, to Jews and Greeks alike, a solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books. They burned them at the public bonfire. The value of the books was over 50,000 pieces of silver. So, verse 20, the message, the gospel, the message about the Lord spread widely, and had a powerful effect. I like how the New American Standard puts it. It says, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Verse 23, about that time, a serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, who was a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis, otherwise known as Diana. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, 
along with others employed in similar trades, and he addressed them as follows. He said, gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business, but as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all, and he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just taking are talking about the loss of public respect for our business, I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Verse 28, at this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers would not let him. So some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. But inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing, some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and he tried to speak, but when the crowd realized that he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And at last the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make the formal charges. Blah, 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 blah. I love this chapter, and I love the picture that it paints because the gospel is rocking that city. It's putting it in absolute, utter confusion. This message that we struggle so often to get people to read about or to listen about puts this particular city, a major city, in high turmoil. All sorts of things are happening. Demons are being taken out of different people's bodies. People are being, I mean, tended to. It's, it's, it's fascinating as you look at all of what's happening. It's happening to such a great degree that the reputation of it is reaching people who are like, this is going to turn into an economic problem, right? Can you imagine? Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the norm. But when I think of Missoula, my heart breaks. I grew up in this town. It was a pokey little blue-collar town that had like three timber mills, you know? It's like, it's changed so much. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. I continue to love it even more and more and more. But it saddens me at how quiet the church is. And when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about the religion. I am talking about the gospel. And the question is this, when will the sleeping giant wake up? I think what we have to do as a church is we have to look at a gospel message that is so powerful and pure. We're not looking to change that message, but we are looking to bring it into a context 
that is a different context than when the gospel was perhaps powerful in, an, in another context or maybe even in another time. We have to think differently. We have to understand people. We have to know what it is that Missoula values, what's important to this city. We have to basically stick our head above water and look around and really take it in. What are the needs that are in this town? When people talk about suffering, where is that occurring? Too often we take this idea that we're going to bring justice into places like Missoula and we put it in a box and we call it outreach. Shame on us. It's not a box. It's as much a part of the gospel as your question of what must I do to be saved. I already told you, all creation groans for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's all waiting. And it's all in the context of this curse. So here's what's difficult for me. got to think differently. But I think we get stuck. I, I think sometimes we take gospel and think that we're talking about how to do church correctly. It's not the same thing. It's entirely different. Church is going to be that context of Christ's body, the result of gospel. That's what church is. Church should happen naturally as a result of gospel movement. But I think what happens is, is we keep gospel, as I've already preached gospel, in the confines of church. And then we check a box thinking that we're doing our duty. No, no. The recipients of gospel are actually out there. Those are the ones that we're to be bringing the truth to. And the question is, how? How will we do it? You know me. I like to think different. I do. Because what happens is this. I want to see where the opportunities are that we haven't thought of. I want to understand what makes a person listen. I think there's a very, very powerful one-word question that we seldom use that we should use more often. You know what it is? Really. Seriously. I used to actually make fun of really. You know, it's like you ask a question, how are you doing today? And they're like, yeah, you know, I'm okay. And you're like, really? And it's almost like the answer gets to change because you ask really. But what really does is it actually tells a person, no, no, I want you to go a little deeper. When I, when I say really to you, I'm saying you now have permission to actually tell me how your day is going. All right, that attitude is what's necessary out there. Your coworkers are not just coworkers. The people you go to school with are not just other students. They are walking around the actual image of God that is suffering from a fallen world and has decided on their own to reject God. They just don't know it. Or maybe they do. It really doesn't matter. But the story that they have, that the gospel is supposed to be inserted into, it will never have that chance if we, the people of God, don't step out there and ask questions. Find out what's important. Draw people close. Understand their hurt. I think too often we look at evangelism as we're going to go out there and we're going to hit people with the Bible. We're going to show them the word. They're not going to listen to that until they know that you care. It starts with something like, really? No, really, you should tell me. 
how will you as the church move forward? It's something that stirs deep inside of me. Part of the reason that I'm stepping down is because I'm getting ready to try some radical things. And they're different and difficult. And quite honestly, I don't want to rock the boat of what's happening here because it is sweet and because I do believe the echo is powerful. Next week when you come back, I want to talk about this church. I want to talk about what we've done, but also what I, where we're heading. I want to talk about this church. At the same time, though, I want to give you an opportunity to see what's going on in here and where I see God leading me. I hate the fact that I'm stepping away as though all of a sudden I found another job. People keep asking me, what are you going to do next? I honestly don't know what other church I'm going to find myself aligned with. If you must know, I've been offered several jobs, including one on Friday, believe it or not. I don't know. All I do know is I want to take this and I want it to take root in the people of this town. And if it means starting a boxing club, For some people, they're like, what does boxing have to do with church? I know. Zero. Unless it's a club that reaches marginalized kids in ways that not even the city can. Unless it creates a context where I'm able to provide a conduit of trust and relationship that breathes life into kids that otherwise don't have a whole lot of chance in life. And through that, we're finding gospel truth. Now, all of a sudden, kind of changes things a little. That's the type of thinking I hope we all can embrace. Do you understand what I'm saying? I can't think of another church that's primed for it better than this one. I'm just being honest, and I'm not trying to slam the other churches in town. You're primed for it. Get out there. Understand this message. Understand the power of it. And then look at what it could do in a city. If we can spread the message in such a way that lives are changed so powerfully that it affects the economic situation, we're throwing a party because it's going to be awesome, right? I get excited about that. Come back next week. Invite friends. Here's your homework assignment. You should reach out to those that have been a part of Echo at some time. I'm proud to say I don't think we've burned very many bridges, if any, at all, with those who have been in this church and then have left. Maybe we have. I'm just not aware of it, right? <laughs> Invite them anyway, all right? I would love to have the people that have experienced what this church is at some point in time to be here as we talk and as we celebrate what this church has done, but then also as we glimpse the future, not just the future of this church, but the future of the kingdom of God. And I hope you can wrap your mind around that value back there, which has been pivotal, pivotal for us, we're part of something greater than just this body because that's what we're needing in the, in the Missoula area. Let's pray. Great God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for the fact that, Lord, you came down here and despite the fact that we rejected you and we sinned against you, you loved us anyway. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for how unique he was and um, the things that he said, the, the, the teachings that he gave, the miracles that he performed. But most of all, Lord, I thank you for the fact he lived a sinless life, that he became 
the substitution, that he took my spot, that he took my sin. Lord, I thank you that he was that sacrificial lamb for everyone in this room, for all humanity. He died and then he conquered death and three days later he rose again. He is the Messiah who will return one day. So Lord, I just ask that there be at least some element of urgency inside of each one of us that the people around us have either already rejected this truth or perhaps they don't even know about it. How much do we love Missoula? Stir that love within us, Lord. Allow us to think differently and to use whatever means necessary to draw close to people, to bring the truth of your word into their lives. Lord, I'm asking for a strong move of the Spirit. And if it has to begin in this building, then let it be so. But a strong movement in your kingdom, specifically in this valley. Great God, I want to see some amazing things happen in this town, just like in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Thank you for everyone who is here. Thank you for our visitors. Thank you for our members. Thank you for those who are no longer with us. Lord, I thank you for everyone whose lives have touched the work of what we have done here at Echo Church. Most of all, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.